Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on May 25th, 2014. Today's message is titled, He's Not Heavy, by Dr. Lyle Schrag, and is based on scripture, Galatians chapter 6, verses 2 to 5. That is him. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. And gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather together in this place and as we have lifted our hearts before you, we have done so in obedience to your claim in our lives. And in our worship, we have declared that we are yours and you are ours. And Lord, we are humbled before you. And in that posture, Lord, we come expectant that you might speak to us by your spirit and guide us and direct us so that we might live lives of purpose and meaning of impact and influence and that we might truly be the people you have meant us to be from the beginning of time. We expect you to be sensitive to our needs. Lord, I pray that you would make us sensitive as well by your spirit to the needs of others, that we might be able to serve and in that service, Lord, be just like you and thus fulfill the law of Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you. It's been two weeks, and if we were to take a trip in the way back machine, Mr. Doolittle, we might remember that in our study that I began two weeks ago, I opened with a line that, that, that drew our thinking around a particular question. A question that is being asked in our time and our day right now that, that seems to be setting a, an attitude uh, among Christians, which I find to be disturbing. It's the question that says, why should I love the church? You know that sort of creed that you might hear from some that say, I can love Jesus, but I can hate the church. And the question really comes down, why should I love the church? You may remember how I shared that concern that we are facing a time where such questions have been challenged and done so with that spirit that says, I'm very justified in being able to say that I can love Jesus, but I can hate the church. And following that sermon, I had a conversation with a few of you who have, in fact, faced that challenge in a very intimate way, maybe from, from family members and maybe some, from some friends as well. If it's of any comfort to you, please know that that is not just a a human issue or a human reaction to church. There are, in fact, divine forces at work within that challenge. Now, some of you may be familiar with uh, C.S. Lewis and particularly his book entitled Screwtape Letters. It, it is an imaginary uh, collection that Lewis writes of notes that, and memos that actually go back and forth between two of Satan's servants or demons. One of them, Screwtape, is a supervisor and a mentor uh, for another Wormwood who's just getting his feet under him as a junior demon. And he's been given the task of, uh, uh, of, of preventing a human being from, from encountering God or being captured by what they call the enemy. At one point, the human patient of Wormwood has decided to go to church and has left Wormwood in a panic. What should he do? What should he do? And Screwtape, the head demon, writes his instructions, and he says this. Listen carefully. He says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. <laughs> Screwtape writes, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity and as terrible as an army with banners. Just think, a mighty fortress is our God. 
That, I confess, Screwtape writes, is a spectacle which makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. But but fortunately, it is quite invisible to these simple humans. He goes on to write, he says, when he goes to church, make sure that he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither one of them understands. And when he gets into his pew and looks around him, have him see just that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flip to and fro between expressions like the body of Christ and then the actual faces in the next pew. It matters very little, of course, what kind of people in the next pew really contains. You may know them to be great warriors on the enemy's side. But no matter, your patient is a fool. Provided that any of these neighbors sing out of tune or have boots that squeak or double chins or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be something ridiculous. Keep everything hazy in his mind now and then you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the peculiar kind of clarity which only hell affords. Ooh. I love reading that because it is so true. We don't see each other as God. God sees us. Children of great worth and value. So why should I love the church? The answer to that question is is as much a matter of spiritual warfare as it is a matter of personal preference. We are the people of God. And as we gather together, God does have a very special purpose for us that can be achieved in no other way than that we are together. And because of that purpose, we then find ourselves needing to look at each other in a brand new light. Now, when reading the New Testament, you remember, may remember that there is one word that is embedded into in every command found that describes what God expects us to do that we do together. It is that Greek word, alelon, or what we have translated as one another. It is used over 100 times in the New Testament, over 30 times in the Gospels, and it is used over 40 times by the Apostle Paul to describe what God expects us to do as his people with one another. You may remember a few that I listed. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We are to honor one another. We are to be of the same mind with one another. We are to accept one another. We are to admonish one another, greet one another, serve one another in love, encourage one another, and build each other up. And there's many more, over a hundred times in the New Testament. God reveals that we have to be in a meaningful relationship with one another. It's who we are, and it's what we do. And if there were any questions about how important it is, consider carefully what is at stake with just one of those one another's that we're going to look at this morning. It's found in the book of Galatians. We read it just a bit earlier. It is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. If you have your Bibles, open there and, and, and linger there with me as we, as, we, as we go through that. There we read in Galatians 6, verse 2, that we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, my eye tends to fixate on the first part of that verse, the command that is there. Bear one another's burdens. But before you go any further, bear in mind what is at stake. 
the law of Christ, fulfilling the law of Christ. For the Apostle Paul, the law of Christ, or is, as one scholar has put it, the whole tradition of Jesus' ethical teaching, confirmed by his character and conduct, and reproduced within his people by the power of his spirit. Could I be so bold as to suggest that you are never more obedient and like Jesus Christ than when you are together, bearing one another's burdens, for by that you are fulfilling the law of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, the sense of that verse is that God has chosen and is able to position us in such a way that we are able to effectively help our brothers and sisters carry the heavy burdens of life. It's why we're together and is what fulfills our calling or that law of Christ. Consider the burdens that we carry and have carried maybe into this place this morning. Terrible loss, crushing circumstances, painful diagnoses, all kinds of troubles that threaten to overwhelm and destroy us if we were to stand alone. Most of those burdens just come with life. But I like the way this appears in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. The most immediate burden that we carry is identified in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It is the one that comes as a result of sin. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. You and I both know that the burden of sin is heavy. If you were to carry it alone, it would crush you. Now, this one isn't easy to do. I'll, I'll freely admit that there is a temptation. <clears throat> On my part, I know to let people live with the consequences of their behavior and their choices and their sin. You chose it. You did the crime. You paid the, pay the fine. You, you do it on your own. Now, is that, is that callous of me to feel that way? I mean, how many times have you seen somebody do something Stupid with a capital stoop. And, 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 you, and you think to yourself, pay for it on your own. But here we are still commanded to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. In fact, our acts of love and support for one another complete that law. Martin Luther called it the law of mutual love. And whether we like it or not, our ability to bear one another's burdens becomes the benchmark of our faith, the true test of the integrity and the quality of our spiritual life. So let me ask you, what do you do when the bottom drops out? Who can you turn to for understanding and comfort, for affirmation and hope and for correction and, and restoration? Is there a shelter somewhere, a place of refuge, where you can be welcomed rather than judged? Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen in the church. You may have heard it before. Keith Miller and Bruce Larson wrote it this way. The neighborhood bar, they wrote, is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship that Christ wants to give to his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality, but it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshakable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets, and they usually don't tell others even if they want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, 
but because people has but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known to love and be loved and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of just a few beers with all my heart they write i believe that christ wants us wants his church to be a fellowship where people can come in and say i'm sunk i'm beat i've had it i'm in need of help Face it, there are times when we need to create a shelter for one another, which is why we are here. It's one thing for us to realize that we find God to be our refuge. We we somehow expect that. That is one of the strongest themes in the Bible. We find it in the book of Psalms, in Psalm chapter 31. In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In thy righteousness, deliver me. Incline thy ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be thou to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. It is one thing for us to find God to be a refuge, the one to whom you can lay down your burden and, and, and another, when becoming a refuge, that's another issue when it becomes personal with one another. Now, I love the word refuge, as it appears, because it re- speaks of a place of safety and of protection. And ideally, we really do find that in our relationship with God, we can count on him to be our refuge. But we also find that is to be what we find in our relationship with one another. We, the church, should be a city of refuge. What a wonderful image of the church. A little further back in the Old Testament than the book of Psalms, we find that not only is the Lord a refuge, but his people were intended to provide refuge for one another. In Joshua chapter 20, after the conquest of Canaan, the children of Israel finally were home, and then God ordered that his people were to set aside certain cities, six cities in all, as cities of refuge. They were places of protection and relief and comfort where people could find safe place with each other. Merrill Unger writes that the Hebrews took it quite seriously. According to the rabbis, in order to aid the fugitive, it was the business of the Sanhedrin to keep the roads leading to those cities of refuge in the best possible repair. No hills were left. Every river was bridged. The road itself was to be at least 32 cubits broad, which is about 48 feet wide. That's about, well, given camels, that's about a 16-lane highway, I suppose. Uh, and every turn was to bear guides, guideposts that bore the word refuge. And two students of the law were appointed to accompany anyone fleeing and to pacify, if possible, the avenger who was chasing should he overtake the fugitive on the way. They took this concept of being refuge for one another quite seriously, and they made every effort to assist those who were in serious trouble. And as they received fugitives into the city, it wasn't just a matter of an escape. It was an asylum. It was a place where the elders would then hear the case of the fugitive. They would listen. They would advise. They would weigh the issues, and then they would judge the case. And after that, they would then aid the fugitives in a way that would restore them back to their life either to repent and reconcile where they were wrong or to find freedom and absolution where they were innocent. But in any case, they would not carry the heavy weight and burden on their own. 
It's a fascinating study to go into these cities of refuge, but I cannot help but think that that model carries over to who we are to be today as God's church. That we are to be a people of refuge for one another. I had that thought, especially in, a, in, in ministry in, the, in one of the churches I pastored. At any given time at that church, uh, there would be anywhere from eight to ten people who had been in ministry who had been burned out, and, and they would come and, and they would primarily sit in the balcony, almost like they were hiding. They, they, they would slip in late and they would slip out early and oftentimes I would have to chase them in order to meet them. And I remember one man finally told me, he said, I hesitated to meet you. And I asked him why. And he said, I wasn't sure what you would do to me. What are we supposed to do with one another? We bear one another's burden. Now, I'm sure you've heard sermons dealing with an interesting contrast and found here in Galatians 6, and I want to point it out once again. Some will see it as a contradiction. Take a look once again in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians 6, 2, it says we are to bear one another's burdens. Do you all see that? Raise your hand if you see it. Yep, you all see that one. Okay, good. Now to go to verse 5. What do you see there? For each one shall bear his own load. Huh. Are we, to, we are to bear one another's burdens, but each one should carry his own load. That sounds so zen, doesn't it? It's like one hand clapping. How do you do that? Well, let me explain it in just a bit and then illustrate the concept. In chapter 6, verse 2, the word for burden is a very specific Greek term, and it's the word bare, which means a heavy burden, something that is simply too heavy and too great for one person to carry. But in verse 5, it is a different word. The word burden there is fortion, which is the common term in the Greek for a backpack, something that was designed specifically for really just one person to carry. Do you get the idea of the difference between the two? A bare, a heavy burden, is something that we can carry together, but the fortune is the one in which a person has to carry alone. Our problem is knowing how to deal with the differences, especially when they appear together. How do I help a person carry the burden that only they can bury alone? They've got to carry it, but I've got to help. How do I do this thing? When I was in university, I experienced something that helped me really understand this. One of my professors, Dr. Mel Renson, announced in, in an English class that we had that he needed some help in moving furniture in his house. He lived with his mother, and uh, I, I don't know if he was in the basement or what, but he needed to move. And so he offered extra credit for any volunteers, and so <laughs> you know, uh, he had no problems in finding uh, a bunch of us that said, yeah, yeah, we'll be there, okay? And so we showed up at Dr. Lorenzen's house in, that evening, and one of the jobs that we had was to move an upright piano from the basement into the upstairs living room. Have you ever sought to lift an upright piano? You know what I'm talking about. So there we are, a bunch of guys uh, going up the stairs, the very narrow stairs in a basement, and 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 and. And my roommate, Paul Matthews, was all found himself all alone at the bottom of the stairs holding the whole weight of the piano. 
Now, I don't know how that works out, but it's a law of physics that no matter how many people you have, there will always be one person carrying the heavy weight and nine standing up on the top of the stairs uh, waiting for disaster. So my, my, my roommate was there, and, and he, he was holding the whole weight, and, and it, was, it was pretty clear that he was in serious trouble. So I ran around the house. And I came in through the basement door, and I rushed up behind Paul, and I tried to reach in around him in order to get a grip on the piano, only to hear him tell me, stop, stop it, stop it. I was knocking him off his grip, he told me. Lyle, he says, don't carry the piano, carry me. Brace my back. I've got my hands on the grips, uh, but I need some other help. And so I did. His shoulders planted into his back. My hands, I don't know where on the body, but I was holding him. I was going to carry him. And I carried him up the steps. And as we got to the top, somehow Galatians chapter 6 began to make some sense. There are burdens that each of us do have to carry alone. No one can carry them for us. In fact, we do maybe, possibly, a disservice to each other if we try to, to dig in and take them away from the person. It's a lesson I've learned as a pastor, as a pastor over the years. People get into trouble, and, and I want to solve it for them, cure it, and end it for them, even when God is using that trouble to shape their character, to get their attention, to teach them to live in utter reliance upon his, him and his spirit and his grace. It's something only they can do. And I rob them and I rob God of his full work in their lives by jumping in too soon. But I dare not leave them alone. And so I pray. And that picture of carrying my roommate as he, as he carried the piano taught me more about supportive prayer than any class in theology. I pray. I pray, and with my prayer, my hands are placed around that person, and so I stay, and I encourage, and I exhort, and I cheer, and I will not stop, and nor should you, with one another. We are to bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? That we love one another. I love the line written by G.K. Chesterton. He said, love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. For in it, we see each other. We are bound to bear one another's burdens, and the more we do, the more we love, and the more we love, the more we bear. No wonder that when Martin Luther wrote his commentary on this particular passage in Galatians, he wrote this. He said a Christian must have broad shoulders and husky bones in order to carry the burdens of his brothers and his sisters. Broad shoulders and husky bones. Ooh. We really do need each other. God made us for such a purpose to make it our business to care for one another. And no matter how much we fool ourselves into thinking that we can buy with that personal creed that I can love Jesus but then hate his body, it doesn't work that way. That is not his law. That is not what God meant for you, for you, for you, or for me. Two weeks ago, I closed with an example that came from the Olympics. 
Let me leave you with another picture that also comes to the Olympics. Actually, this happened at the Special Olympics. In an event that was held for those who were severely challenged, it was the 100-yard dash. Ten contestants were lined up. The starter raised the gun and, on your mark, get set, bang, go! And it looked like the start of every other 100-yard dash. The runner started with utter concentration down their lane, almost like it was a tunnel. It was their race to win, and they were so focused on it as they began to make their way. So off they went. But as the runners rushed down the track, shoulder to shoulder, one young woman tripped herself and sprawled headlong on the track, and she turned over in, 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 in some degree an amount of pain, but even more in, in some degree an amount of embarrassment. And the rest of the pack pulled away, but only got about five or ten feet when they all, without notice, just pulled up. And without any communication among themselves, they stopped and they turned and they jogged back to their fallen friend, no longer competitors, but now companions. And they picked her up off the track and they comforted her. And they wiped away her tears and they brushed away the, the ash, the dust and... And then together, with arms around each other, with remarkable demonstration, they ran to the finish line, determined to finish the race all as one. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. You were called to be free, we read, but do not use your freedom to indulge a sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love, bear one another's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill the law of Christ. Jesus defined that law and made it a command. A new command I give you, he said, that you love one another. By this, all men shall know that you are my disciples that you have love for one another. So Ebenezer Baptist Church, what is it about you that makes you look just like Jesus? What will it be about you that tells everybody who's watching that you are the people who belong to a heavenly Lord? It will be you, Christian, exhibiting Christ-like love as you bear one another before the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, there are burdens in this life and in this world that are, are much more than we were ever designed to carry. And, and were we to carry them alone, they would crush us. And we know how that has been. And yet you have, Lord, decided not to leave us alone into this. You have given us yourself, and by your Spirit you strengthen us from within. And we give you thanks for that. For we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who has loved us. But Lord, you've given us to each other as well. And with that, Lord, there is a degree of comfort and there is a, a degree of gentleness that we are able to share with one another that carries us through. I pray, even as I prayed before, that as we expect you to be sensitive to our needs, that by the power and the working of your Holy Spirit, you would make us sensitive to the needs 
that are right here at hand with one another. Help us, Lord, in that sensitivity to reach out in prayer and with care and thus fulfill your law. This we pray in the wonderful and the powerful name of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.